Hello there, I'm Dr. Vivian Lowe and you're on VLMD Rounds, a podcast on medical science and tools to optimize your health. Many of you know that I take requests and I've gotten uh, several requests from people to talk about different neurodegenerative diseases and uh, that's something I want to get to at some point. One of the difficult things about preparing for these episodes is just to think about the information that I want to convey and to distill it down to what's absolutely necessary because there's just so much information and rather than clog the brain with just too many things, what do I really want to get across? But when we talk about big topics like neurodegenerative diseases, such as, um, you know, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, Huntington's, those kinds of things, there's just so much to get in. And I've realized that I can't get it in in one episode. And so I've tried to build... um, and progressively get to the topic or to look at those topics maybe from different angles. Today, I am going to make a start towards talking about some of those uh, neurodegenerative disorders. And the way we're going to do that is actually just to look at insulin in the brain. And the reason for this is that Sometimes I think people forget or are unaware that insulin in the brain is not necessarily the same as insulin in the periphery. So I thought maybe let's just get clear on some of these aspects before we actually do a deep dive into those bigger topics. Okay, so let's go. All right, uh, you've probably heard people talk about insulin resistance and how it impacts the brain. And oftentimes people will even talk about Alzheimer's disease as type three diabetes. And um, it's assumed from some of those conversations that I listen in on that insulin in the brain is the same as insulin in the periphery. Let's get some terminology out of the way. When I say periphery, I just mean your whole body minus the brain. And generally, insulin in the periphery, insulin in the bloodstream, and its action on different tissues in your body. When we talk about CNS, or central nervous system insulin, then we're talking about insulin in the brain and in the spinal cord because... You know, those are the two components of your central nervous system. Okay, so if you hear me talk about central, I mean in the brain. Um, I was looking at a book by someone um, who had some very good points and was talking about insulin resistance as the root cause of of most chronic diseases, and I heartily agree with that. That book um, was a very good book on looking at insulin resistance in the body. Interestingly, 
the person also talked a little bit about insulin resistance in the brain. And um, here's a quote from the book. Problems arise when you have too much insulin or when the brain fails to respond to insulin. And then later on, um, he goes on to say, as in our muscles, insulin facilitates the movement of glucose into the brain. I'm going to read that again. As in our muscles, insulin facilitates the movement of glucose into the brain. So, you know, when I read those sentences, it just, uh, it struck me because I think um, probably, um, I don't know, I, I think the person used a, a, a ghost writer or someone to help write the book and maybe it didn't come across the way it should have. Um, it just basically, I think, underlines some of the fuzziness that we have around brain insulin. So that's really why I'm trying to clarify that hopefully a little bit. It's not easy because it's actually still uh, a field where we don't have enough research. We don't have a huge amount of information. It's hard to quantify CNS um, insulin. So it's still um, you know, a field where there's a lot of work to be done, but there are some things that we do know and we should at least make those things clear. All right. So the brain is only like 2% of your body mass. So it's not very big, but it consumes 20% of its glucose, right? And in fact, it really needs the glucose to be functioning well. Now we have insulin signaling throughout our whole body in all tissues. However, a lot of times when we talk about insulin, we're only talking about the glucose disposal aspects of insulin. And um, there are many you know, tissues that respond to insulin, but not necessarily related to this feedback loop between glucose and insulin. Insulin and IGF-1, insulin-like growth factor 1, pathways, they are really very important nutrient sensing pathways and vital to longevity and lifespan um, extension. And in fact, um, insulin signaling is just really one of the most conserved, evolutionarily conserved pathways in terms of control of aging, of longevity, right? And um, we have, for example, in social animals like ants, you know, longevity and reproduction really controlled by different insulin signaling pathways, and they can adjust lifespan and uh, reproduction capability based on differential insulin um, signaling. Okay, so that's really very old and evolutionarily conserved. And in fact, the glucose disposal aspect of insulin is quite new. It's one of the newer functions of 
insulin. And yet that's the one we mostly address, especially in the low carb world, right? Um, in the US, the prevalence of insulin resistance is about 24% in adults over the age of 20 years old. But in those older than 50 years old, then the prevalence is 40%. I kind of think that that might still be a little low, um, that we probably have a lot more insulin resistance than we recognize. Now with <clears throat> central insulin resistance, we can see this in conjunction with peripheral um, insulin resistance. We can see it also just central insulin resistance just with aging alone, so in the elderly. We can see it with Alzheimer's and we can also see it with Alzheimer's plus peripheral insulin resistance. So in other words, we can see expression of central insulin resistance in different um, scenarios, sometimes with peripheral insulin resistance and sometimes without, okay? So let's just start with the periphery. Quick review there. Um, as you know, insulin is produced in the pancreas to help us regulate our blood glucose levels. There's a negative feedback loop with glucose. So as the blood glucose rises, let's say after a meal, then you're going to secrete insulin to help dispose of the glucose, um, primarily by uh, GLUT4 translocation to the membrane to bring glucose into the insulin-sensitive tissue, um, fat and muscle, right? So we reviewed that in a previous uh, episode. And as the glucose level drops, then of course you don't need as much insulin. So the insulin levels will fall back to basal levels, never fall to zero because we always have some basal insulin floating around, right? Um, but they do come down as the glucose comes down. So there is this feedback loop between glucose and insulin that's well established in um, the periphery. And when we talk about insulin resistance in the periphery, then what we're saying is that the insulin sensitive tissues need more and more insulin to handle uh, the glucose, right? Because it's somehow becoming less effective. And so we need the pancreas to produce more and more insulin to handle the same load of glucose to keep the glucose at a uh, good level, uh, euglycemic level, we say, in the bloodstream. And when we have insulin resistance, generally we start, we see hyperinsulinemia. So, you know, we start cranking out more and more insulin as it becomes less and less effective, but we're still managing to keep the blood sugar in a good place. So we call that hyperinsulinemic euglycemia, but over time, right, um, it gets to a point where that insulin really doesn't work anymore um, to help you dispose of the glucose. And then we get hyperinsulinemic hyperglycemia. That's when now we start to see rising glucose levels um, in the bloodstream. Now, generally, 
we know that we don't want to have that hyperinsulinemic situation in the bloodstream. And one strategy that we have is to cut carbs. So you hear about that in the low carb or keto world. You're cutting the carbs so that you don't hyperstimulate and have high levels of insulin. Okay, that's in the periphery. Now, with CNS, insulin resistance, or, you know, brain insulin, it's different because actually if you give more insulin, you will actually improve cognition in patients, let's say, with Alzheimer's. You improve the situation. You have more neuroprotective effects when you give insulin. So in the periphery, we want to get rid of the insulin effect. That's why we cut carbs. But in the brain, actually, if you give um, the CNS insulin, then you, are, if you infuse, let's say, in insulin into the brain, then you actually improve the situation in terms of cognition and you get uh, more neuroprotective effects in the brain. So when we talk about insulin resistance in the brain, we are actually talking about a deficiency in insulin or insulin action. Deficiency in insulin, because if you gave more insulin, everything gets better, right? And you can also have resistance at the receptor level, okay? Kind of similar to in the periphery, right? So when we say CNS, insulin resistance, we have both of those things happening, not enough insulin and also resistance at the receptor level. Okay, now um, the CNS insulin receptors, they're not involved in that insulin glucose feedback loop that we see in the periphery, not involved, okay? So your bloodstream insulin is not going to be affected by deficient uh, insulin in the brain, okay? So it's kind of divorced from the periphery uh, feedback loop between glucose and insulin there. Now, the brain is mostly not dependent on the GLUT4 translocators for glucose uptake, all right? So I think the reason sometimes people say that it's kind of like in the muscle, you know, um, is because we do see GLUT4 in some areas of the brain, expressed in some areas of the brain, like the hippocampus, like the hypothalamus, right? But it actually doesn't impact the glucose uptake in those areas. So this is a study from way back in 2012 in the Journal of Clinical Investigation. It was a landmark study by Talbot et al. And I'm going to quote, while insulin does induce translocation of GLUT4 to neuronal membranes in the hippocampal formation and cerebellum, it consistently fails on its own to induce neuronal glucose uptake at doses of 1 to 1,000 nanomoles. All right. And uh, this actually has been seen in numerous studies. So we do have GLUT4 present in those areas of the brain. However, uh, 
it doesn't seem to be involved in uh, insulin action there, doesn't seem to induce, as they say, neuronal glucose uptake. Okay, so just because you see GLUT4 present doesn't mean it's like in the muscles or in fat. Okay, and in fact, Talbot in that same paper, he addresses the term type 3 diabetes. He says, moreover, the insulin resistance we demonstrated in Alzheimer's dementia brains occurred in the absence of type 1 or type 2 diabetes and did not affect glucose uptake in neurons the way peripheral insulin resistance does in muscle, fat, and liver. Okay, so again, as in our muscles, insulin facilitates the movement of glucose into the brain. But here back in 2012, we knew that um, really, you know, it doesn't impact glucose uptake in neurons the way peripheral insulin resistance does in muscle fat and in the liver. Okay, there's a further study here uh, from the Journal of Neuroscience Research by Zilberder in 2017. And he was looking at glucose hypometabolism in various neurodegenerative disorders. It's well known that in a lot of these neurodegenerative disorders, you have glucose hypometabolism. And here specifically, again, I'm quoting, we found no effect of insulin on glucose transients in response to synaptic stimulation, both in control and after detrimental action of amyloid beta. So in his studies, um, they used extracellular glucose sensors in hippocampal slices, and they directly measured real-time activity-dependent glucose uptake in control after amyloid uh, beta application and following addition of pyruvate or insulin. So here actually what he found in that study was that these um, proteins, the uh, beta amyloid proteins that we find uh, deposited in uh, Alzheimer's brains, for example, that those oligo oligomers actually induced insulin resistance. And he was looking to see what would happen um, in different situations uh, with the glucose uptake. So he had control and then he had um, some slices that were exposed to beta amyloid. And then he also used pyruvate and insulin to see if that would change glucose uptake. Application of beta amyloid resulted in a significant 50% reduction of glucose uptake. Right? Insulin did not affect glucose uptake in control um, slices of the hippocampus. It did not affect glucose uptake prior to or following the amyloid beta application. So it really didn't seem to have an effect. All right. And his conclusion was, therefore, it's likely that actions of insulin signaling in hippocampus are not associated with a direct effect 
on glucose uptake, right? Really important um, to remember that because again, when I hear people talk about insulin resistance in the brain, they talk about it the same way that they talk about insulin resistance in the periphery. And it's not the same, okay? It's not the same. And insulin, again, even though there are you know, GLUT4 transporters in certain parts of the brain, insulin does not seem to impact glucose uptake, all right, in the brain that way. Now, the brain has mostly GLUT1 and GLUT3. Those are not dependent or not sensitive to insulin, um, you know, technically. However, we found that in some studies that, you know, with, the brain is able to detect insulin and we do see response um, in GLUT3 upregulation and maybe some GLUT1 also in the brain. But it's not the canonical insulin pathways that we know of, okay? So somehow the brain is sensing and maybe there's some impact via GLUT1 or GLUT3. But certainly it's not like in muscle or in fat um, because when we talk about those tissues, we're primarily talking about GLUT4. All right. Okay. Just to finish off the Zilberta study, um, when they added pyruvate, that improved glucose consumption in those uh, hippocampal samples. Okay. So again, when they gave the amyloid beta, you had 50% decrease, right, in glucose uptake. And when you now added back some pyruvate, and they added like five millimoles of pyruvate, while the amyloid beta was still present, we saw actually, um, again, increased glucose consumption. And this is because they think that the pyruvate via lactate dehydrogenase restores NAD+. Okay? And with that restoration, we now have um, increased glucose consumption again. Okay? So the main thing to remember here is it's not the same as in the periphery. That's one thing you get from this episode. Just please remember that. So the insulin receptor is found really all over the brain, right? Especially in areas that are related to cognition, uh, to feeding behaviors. So cerebellum, cortex, hypothalamus, those are, you know, everywhere you'll see the insulin receptor. And insulin and IGF-1 both actually impact brain metabolism. So it's not just insulin, IGF-1, insulin-like growth factor 1, very important also in the brain. Let's just take a closer look at the insulin receptor. It's made of dimers of alpha and beta subunits, okay? So you have an alpha-beta subunit and then it's dimerized to another alpha-beta subunit, right? So you have a pair like that and that makes up the insulin receptor. And we actually have two isoforms. We have insulin receptor A isoform, and then we have the B isoform. The B isoform is actually the longer form. It has an extra 12 amino acids there, okay? In the periphery, uh, we mostly see the B isoform, insulin receptor B isoform, although, you know, it does vary with tissue. Okay, in the brain, we see the A isoform primarily in neurons, and then the B isoform we see in 
the glial cells, so astrocytes, for example, microglia, all right? These are the supporting cells in the brain, and they express the B isoform, whereas the neurons are expressing the um, A isoform of the insulin receptor. Um, as I said earlier in the periphery, it's mostly the B, but depending on the tissue, you can have some A isoform expression. In the brain, as you notice, it's actually the specific cell types that will have different um, isoforms, okay? The cell types in the brain. The affinity for insulin in the A isoform is, you know, up to twofold higher than the B isoform, so higher uh, affinity there. Now, in the CNS, you have also these heterodimers of the insulin receptor. So you can have isoform A with isoform A, that's one possibility. You can have isoform B with isoform B, that's another option. Then you could have IGF-1 receptor with IGF-1 receptor, third option. And then we can have isoform A with IGF-1 receptor, okay, that's another option. We can have insulin receptor isoform B with IGF-1 receptor, all right, and that's another option, okay? So these are the possibilities there. So when you have isoform A with IGF-1 or isoform B with IGF-1 receptor, those are called hybrid receptors because it's actually insulin receptor isoform with an IGF-1 receptor, okay? So that's a hybrid receptor. Now the hybrid receptors, they can bind insulin, they can bind IGF-1 obviously, and even IGF-2, but they actually have higher affinity for IGF-1. So they preferentially seem to bind and signal via the IGF-1 pathways. Okay, now with um, classical insulin receptor binding cascade, we know that insulin binds to the receptor, autophosphorylates it, and then we bind to IRS1, insulin receptor substrate one or two, and then we have activation of the PI3 kinases and then the um, protein kinase B or AKT, right, and mTOR. So that's the signaling pathway that we often hear about, and that's in the periphery. We also have that in the brain. But, you know, insulin in the brain, besides, um, you know, as it goes through this pathway, it affects neuronal survival. It um, is important in cholesterol synthesis, for example, in uh, neurotransmitter trafficking, in synaptic plasticity, and it also is important in cell growth and proliferation via the ERK and MAPK um, pathways. Those are things I talked a little bit about when I talked about insulin, okay? So those are pathways that are involved in cell growth and proliferation. I was talking to a physician and he said to me, this is very recent, he said he had no idea that insulin did anything other than help you dispose of glucose, right? And certainly that's usually what we talk about when we talk about insulin, but we have these uh, 
mitogenic pathways. So mitogenic pathways are pathways that are involved with cell division and cell proliferation. So that would be the ERK and the MAPK pathways, for example. So the IGF-1 receptor actually signals more these mitogenic pathways um, when we are in the brain, okay? And when we, we talk at least about Alzheimer's, and again, this episode is not specifically about Alzheimer's. We'll go into that in, in another episode. Okay, this is just a prelude to any of those neurodegenerative disorders. I just want to set the stage for brain insulin, right? But at least in Alzheimer's, we see there's downregulation of all insulin signaling pathways, okay? And um, we also see that these amyloid beta oligomers, they actually induce rapid internalization of the insulin receptor and inhibit the insulin receptors as well. So that's one way maybe that we have insulin resistance is through the amyloid beta um, in those Alzheimer uh, patients. Okay, now let's just look at insulin in the brain and how it gets there. We have found that in Drosophila and flies, in rodents, in rabbits, that actually their brains make insulin. All right, which is kind of amazing. It's not just the pancreas, the brain there is making insulin. This may be true for humans, we are not sure. There's some argument about that. But certainly, you know, it's something to think about because maybe we are even making insulin in our brains, which is mind boggling. Okay. However, at this point, we still believe that most of the insulin in the brain comes from the pancreas, okay? That's still what we believe at this point. So this means that insulin has to, once it's secreted into the bloodstream, it has to cross the blood-brain barrier. The blood-brain barrier is actually this barrier between your blood um, vasculature and the brain parenchyma, the brain cells, okay? So the, um, the, the, the blood vessels that feed into the brain, the endothelial lining there, the cells that are lining the lumen of the um, blood vessel, those cells have tight junctions. And I've talked about tight junctions in other episodes. This is when the cells uh, are abutting each other very tightly and they have special proteins uh, also to help them keep those tight junctions. And this means that substances cannot readily get through and pass from the blood into the brain, okay? So that is the blood-brain barrier. Now, there are areas in the brain where we lose this blood-brain barrier, and these are the circumventricular organs, like the median eminence, okay? So in those areas, there are gaps uh, on those endothelial cells. We call them fenestr uh, fenestrated endothelial cells. 
So there are gaps there. So now we don't have those tight junctions and substances now can, that normally don't get through the blood brain barrier can get across into the brain at those points. It's sort of like this border and then there are gaps in the fencing, right? And you can sneak in that way, okay? So there are these ependymal cells and there are tannocytes there that will endocytose um, the insulin and bring it into the brain, okay? No need to worry, just realize that there are areas in the brain where there are gaps in the blood-brain barrier. So that's one way that insulin can get into the brain. Now, the other way that we think insulin gets into the brain is through the endothelial insulin receptor, okay? We've seen this in, let's say, the, the aorta, where the insulin receptor of the um, endothelial cells lining the aorta, big blood vessel, um, is able to bring the insulin into the wall of the aorta, okay? So we can see that the endothelial cells at the blood-brain barrier, right, those cells, even though they have tight junctions, they have insulin receptors there and they can bring insulin into the brain via those insulin receptors. However, we've noted that um, actually if you inhibit the endothelial insulin receptor or you have an um, insulin receptor antagonist at the endothelial level, or you use endothelial insulin receptor knockout mice, yeah, we see that the binding of insulin to the endothelial receptor is decreased, but it really doesn't impact the influx of insulin into the brain. So what does this mean? There is another transport system, okay? Probably a transport protein that is helping to bring the insulin into the brain, okay? And that is saturable meaning that you got a fixed number and once they're all filled up, right, once you've used up all these transport proteins, you can't stuff any more into the brain, okay? So your serum or blood levels of insulin actually are quite different from your CSF, cerebrospinal fluid levels of insulin. It's much lower in the CSF as compared to the bloodstream. Okay, so there's a big difference there because it's a saturable transport system. And um, the greatest level of insulin transport is seen in the olfactory bulb, the pons medulla, and also the hypothalamus. And of course, this transport system is going to likely be impacted by oxidative stress, by inflammation, okay? And so we'll talk about those processes in another episode, but you can see that inflammation is going to impact uh, the ability of insulin to get into the brain. So if you have a lot of inflammation, you might not be having enough insulin get into the brain, okay? Also, the isoforms expressed um, are very important at the blood-brain barrier, okay? So in a healthy state, the main form of the insulin receptor at the blood-brain barrier uh, in those endothelial cells 
is the B isoform. That's the main one. However, when we look at patients with Alzheimer's, you actually see higher insulin receptor A uh, isoforms over the B isoforms. Okay, so you have now more A uh, to B ratio, higher A to B ratio at the blood-brain barrier, and this correlates to cognitive decline in those patients. Okay, so very interesting because the isoform expression at the blood-brain barrier seems to also have a role in, you know, insulin resistance there. All right. Now, uh, let's just also now talk about how your brain insulin is impacting your peripheral metabolism. Okay, so generally brain insulin can, right, suppress hepatic gluconeogenesis and this is having direct effects uh, via the vagus nerve on the liver, okay? And we've seen that in animal studies. In human studies, not quite so clear-cut. We have mixed results, okay? Um, However, what we have seen in general, we think that it also happens in humans that there is the, that the brain insulin is helping to suppress hepatic gluconeogenesis, except in disease states like diabetes and obesity. And in those cases, we lose the suppressive effect, right? And so now we have glucose, uh, gluconeogenesis in the liver, and that brain insulin doesn't seem to be able to suppress that effect. Okay, so that's in disease states. Um, when you give intranasal uh, insulin, what you also find is you suppress lipolysis. All right, so when you do that, you actually decrease the amounts of free fatty acids floating in the blood. And free fatty acids are very toxic and they can become different lipid species like ceramides, which themselves are very toxic and are implicated in insulin resistance. So, you know, brain um, insulin can also suppress lipolysis and this uh, free fatty acids floating around the blood causing peripheral insulin resistance. But again, in disease states like diabetes and obesity, you might have those effects negated as well. Okay. Also, generally, in animal and human studies, we find that insulin in the brain helps to augment the counter-regulatory response to low glucose in the blood. Okay. So when you have low glucose in the blood, you have sympathetic activation, glucagon secretion, because we want to now raise the um, blood glucose, right? So you have increased uh, sympathetic activation uh, via the insulin in the brain as well to augment this response and we have more gluconeogenesis. So if you think about it, there's a little bit of a paradoxical effect of insulin in the brain on the periphery because on the one hand, we suppress the hepatic gluconeogenesis right, in the healthy state mostly, right, and then also 
when you have low blood sugar, you're able to actually augment the counter-regulatory response to hypoglycemia, so we raise blood sugar, okay? So it's very important that way in helping us manage your whole body um, metabolism, okay? So, you know, the main takeaway, and I didn't want to go too much into detail because it can get pretty technical, um, but I just want people to understand uh, that when you talk about brain insulin resistance, it's not the same as the periphery. With the periphery, and I'm starting to do the wrap up here, right? With the periphery, we start to have, um, you know, hyperinsulinemia because we have decreasing effects of of insulin on glucose disposal in the glucose sensitive tissues, muscle and fat, okay, and also liver. And uh, that for a while manages to keep you euglycemic. And then over time, uh, you know, you get hyperinsulinemic hyperglycemia as well, okay. And in the periphery, it's a good idea to decrease the hyperinsulinemia which is why we cut the carbs and people generally uh, decrease their insulin resistance or get rid of their insulin resistance that way in the periphery. In the CNS, it's different, okay? And actually, when you give intranasal insulin, you actually improve brain function, all right? You improve, um, you know, development, you improve uh, uh, um, plasticity in the brain and so forth, okay? You improve um, feeding behaviors so that uh, you give intranasal insulin, for example, and in healthy subjects, they actually lose weight because they don't get hungry and they, they don't want to eat much, okay? However, that's not the case when you give intranasal insulin to um, people with obesity, Okay, so generally when you give the insulin, there's an improvement in the state there. And so the CNS insulin resistance is, you know, a, a combination probably of both deficient insulin or deficient insulin action and also resistance at the receptor level. Okay, so those are the things that make it different in uh, the brain. And as I showed you, just because you have GLUT4 present in the brain doesn't mean it works the same way as in the peripheral tissues, okay? So with insulin and the GLUT4 transporter in the brain, we don't see increased glucose uptake. It doesn't have that effect there in the areas of the brain with GLUT4. We mostly actually in the brain depend on GLUT1 and GLUT3, which are generally thought as uh, thought of as insulin independent. Okay, in the brain, however, insulin may have some effects non-canonical, right, in actually upregulating, augmenting the effects of GLUT1 and GLUT3 in some way. Okay. The general consensus still is that insulin is not important in terms of glucose uptake in the brain, okay? And it's more actually interference 
at the signaling level in the pathways that cause um, the resistance. And there is some implication that maybe the amyloid beta proteins are involved in bringing about the insulin resistance, as I showed you um, in the Zilberta uh, research, okay? Now, what else did we talk about? Uh, we talked about the different um, isoforms of the insulin receptor. So we have the A isoform and the longer B isoform. And you can have um, mostly the B isoforms in the periphery and some tissues may have the A isoform. But in the brain, we should look at the cell types because it's the neurons that express the A isoform and the glial cells that will express mostly the B isoforms, right? And there are different affinities for um, insulin depending on the isoform. So isoform A actually has a better affinity than the B isoform. However, you have also possibilities of these hybrid receptors in the brain where you have the A isoform uh, you know, dimerized to the IGF-1 receptor, okay, or the B isoform uh, dimerized to the IGF-1 receptor. Those hybrid receptors tend to more strongly bind IGF-1, even though they can bind insulin and IGF-2 as well. They tend to prefer and have higher affinity for IGF-1 and they also then tend to express more of the mitogenic pathways, the uh, cell growth and proliferative pathways of insulin signaling, okay, rather than the glucose, general glucose disposal uh, pathway. And um, the signaling also involves in the brain a lot of neuronal function, neurotransmitter function, right, synaptic plasticity, and, um, you know, uh, longevity of those cells there. Uh, we talked a little bit also about how insulin gets in the brain. Maybe it's made in the brain, we're not sure. But primarily, we think it comes still from the pancreas getting into the bloodstream. And then it has to cross the blood-brain barrier in the brain. And it can do so at the areas where we lose the blood-brain barrier, the gaps in the barrier, those are the circumventricular organs in the brain and then the insulin can sneak in that way. They can also get in via the endothelial cell insulin receptor. So they bind to the insulin receptor on the uh, cells lining the blood vessels and then the insulin now is taken in to uh, that cell and then into the brain parenchyma that way. Okay, we know that happens. Um, in the healthy state, you see usually more of the B isoform of the receptor in the blood-brain barrier. But when we have a disease state like Alzheimer's, then you actually start to see more of the A isoform at the blood-brain barrier. So the isoforms may be important here in um, insulin regulation in the brain, especially in the disease state. Now, we also know that if we knock out the endothelial insulin receptor in various ways, uh, we still will have insulin influx into the brain, okay? So insulin going into the brain 
is not impacted when we knock out those endothelial insulin receptors. You do see less binding uh, to the endothelial cell, but so what? The insulin is still getting in there. So we know there's another transport system, probably some protein that will actually transport um, the insulin into the brain. And that uh, protein system is saturable, meaning that you know, once you have filled or used up all the, uh, the proteins, the, the transport proteins, you can't get more insulin into the brain. And actually, you know, as the blood sugar level rises in your bloodstream, yeah, you have less and less insulin able to get into the brain because we've saturated those transport proteins, okay? And in a fasted state, you actually can get more insulin into the brain um, because at that time, you know, you're not saturating those, um, those uh, uh, transport proteins, okay? Very interesting that way. And of course, because it's at the blood-brain barrier, um, it can be, this transport system is likely impacted by inflammation um, at the, at the blood-brain barrier, oxidative stress, and so forth. So if we have compromise to the blood-brain barrier, then we're going to impact the ability of insulin to get into the brain. Um, the areas where we see most of the transport would be the olfactory bulb, um, the pons medulla, and also the hypothalamus areas of the brain, okay? Brain insulin also impacts peripheral metabolism, so it generally suppresses gluconeogenesis in the liver directly, and um, it can also augment um, sympathetic activation to have a strong counter-regulatory effect to hypoglycemia in uh, your bloodstream. Okay, so when your blood sugar drops low, we have sympathetic uh, activation from insulin in the brain to help you bring up um, your glucose level via more gluconeogenesis. So it can do this modulation and help regulate blood sugar in the periphery. And in disease states, this might be compromised, okay? So um, what, what, when we see the suppression of gluconeogenesis, um, and so that we don't have hyperglycemia. And also when we have low blood sugar, we can actually help the periphery raise the blood sugar with more gluconeogenesis. We see that in generally healthy um, people. And if you have people with metabolic dysfunction, diabetes, obesity, that kind of thing, then you can lose that effect. And as I said, we've seen lots of cases where you give intranasal insulin and that can help in cognition in healthy adults, but you don't have the same effect in people with metabolic dysfunction, okay? There's still a lot about CNS insulin that needs to be dissected out because, as I said, a lot of times it's hard to figure out you know, how much insulin we have in the brain. So we often look at CSF, the cerebrospinal fluid, but, and we use it as a proxy for insulin in the brain. But actually, it may not um, accurately um, represent insulin signaling and, and the amount of insulin that's in the brain parenchyma. Okay, So we just, at best now, tend to look at CSF 
and that makes it very difficult for us to figure out what's going on in the brain parenchymal tissue. And the other thing is in a lot of these studies, you know, they when they administer um, infusion of insulin into the brain, into the ventricles of the brain, for example, through injections and so forth, or maybe intranasal, um, a lot of those studies, especially the older ones, didn't control for spillage into the periphery so that um, it was hard now to separate the peripheral effects from the CNS effects, okay? Um, the more recent studies control for that better, and we're now just starting to get a better glimpse of CNS insulin. Okay, I hope that was helpful. As I said, before we do deep dives into neurodegenerative diseases, you know, I just wanted to clear this up about insulin resistance in the brain. It is not the same as in your uh, fat and in your muscles and your liver, okay? The periphery, different, okay? So hopefully you have that takeaway from this episode. And later on, if you are interested, let me know and we can dive into other uh, aspects of brain insulin. It can get a little bit technical, um, but and also, um, you know, neurodegenerative dysfunction, some of the mechanisms uh, for those disease states. All right. For now, got through that. So I am happy to sign out now from VLMD Rounds. I'm Dr. Vivian Lowe, and I sing the body electric. Thank you. Bye.